From the mountains to the coast, create memories, meet new people, and find your favorite wine, mead, or cider in NC. Download the NC Wine app or visit ncwine.org to plan your trip to North Carolina wine country today. Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm Joe. We're the NC Wine Guys. Welcome to Cork Talk. In this episode, we sit down with Jonah Hoosier of Stony Knoll Vineyards in Dobson, North Carolina. Jonah is the head of operations at Stony Knoll Vineyards, which includes vineyard management and winemaking. He is part of the sixth generation family legacy that is tending the Century Farm at Stony Knoll. Wine Class with the Wine Mouths is back. This time, Jesse and Jessica talk to us about the flavor and aroma compound, Thiols. This episode is made possible in part by a grant from the North Carolina Wine and Grape Council. You can learn more about the council by going to their website, ncwine.org. So sit back, pour a glass, and listen. So we're here today at Stony Knoll Vineyards, uh, recording live and in person with Jonah of Stony Knoll. Jonah, welcome to Cork Talk. Thank you for having me. So tell folks a little bit about who you are and what you do here at Stony Knoll and a little bit about Stony Knoll Vineyards. So my name is Jonah Hoosier, uh, currently kind of in, in charge of all the operations with, within the vineyard and the winery. Uh, I, I am sixth generation on the farm. Uh, my father-in-law, many, many of you probably know, is, is Van Coe. He was fifth generation uh, on the farm, him and his wife, Kathy, and they are the ones that started the vineyard portion of, of, of the farm. We, back in the good old days, uh, from about the 40s until the, the 80s, mid-80s, we were a tobacco farm and got out of the back in the mid-80s. Did a few things in between there in the 90s, uh, raised, raised some cattle, cut some hay, and then late 90s is when my father-in-law, series of events, um, was wanting to do something else with the farm. and. Main goal being multi-generational, kind of kind of like folks used to look at tobacco back then. And it, it just so happened that uh, that was about the time that uh, Charlie and Ed was getting good and geared up at Shelton. They had helped get started the, the veterinology program at, at Surrey Community. And my father-in-law and then his brother-in-law spent two years taking courses to kind of get a background on grapes. And we ended up planning in 2001, started construction of the tasting room and winery in 2003, and then opened in October of 2004. So Van and and his brother-in-law started out, uh, Van was focused a lot on the growing side of things. His his brother-in-law, Lynn, Lynn Krauss, was focused on the winemaking side of things and kept it like that until somewhere around 2010 and and Lynn was kind of eyeballing retirement and Van turned into a one-man bandstand and <laughs> and kept that that pace for for several years and uh, as of June of 2019 he had kind of decided to to not completely step away by no stretch but to start slowing down and that was when I decided to, to leave my career do this full-time so I've been here like I said full-time since June of 2019 I have been around it in some form or fashion and, and helped Van for going on going on 17 years now. I kind of used it as a means to 
to get a little closer to this, this little gal that I had my eye on and uh, decided to help Van around the farm. And uh, then that turned into to me dating my, my now wife, uh, Patricia. That's kind of the, the brief history of, of how Stoney Owen and myself come to Quite the journey. And certainly it's good to see that that multi-generational idea is, start, is coming to fruition with you and the next generation there. So, uh, so you mentioned the vineyard was planted in 2001. So what was the initial planting at that time? And then, you know, kind of walk us through maybe the evolution of the vineyard since then. Okay. So, so the initial planting, uh, was on the farm and it's, it's the vineyard that you see as you're coming into the property. Uh, it was the original five and a quarter acres of grapes. Started with Cabernet Sauvignon, Chardonnay, Syrah, Cabernet Franc, and Niagara. Um, started producing really well. Actually, had a few grapes the the first year, which was was odd. But um, the the first full we'll, we'll call it full crop load that that we had some wine made actually at Rag Apple uh, was in 2003. And then the, the first production that we handled ourselves on site was 2004. And we, we kept things pretty much the same for, for several years. And then around 2010, we, we had a, a neighbor that uh, grew, have grown over the years to be wonderful friends with, uh, Steve Cox. But he, he had a property about an eighth of a mile from us that, that had some grapes on it. Um, four, four, three-quarter acres, a little higher density, so we, we round it off and call it five acres. Um, but he had some, some events happen and lost a fellow that was helping him tend the grapes, and that's, that's where him and my father-in-law kind of started talking. And then ever since then, we have been tending uh, that property, and that is where our Chamberson, Merlot, and Viognier are located. So all in all, including that, we are currently at 10 acres and nine varieties. The most significant change, uh, unfortunately, after the 2019 crop, we discovered we had some leaf roll in our Cabernet Franc, decided to pull up our block of Cab Franc, and I have since replanted, it was uh, April of 2020, replanted with Corot Noir and Arendelle. Getting some more variety and getting some more hybrids in there that are probably a little bit. Trying, that, that is the, the main goal. We, we've kind of assessed our 20-some uh, years of growing and seen, we, we've seen some things that do work. We've seen some things that do not work, uh, and, and including varieties, and that, that is, what we that that's what my hopes is in my tenure here is to change up some ratios and and have some additional hybrid varieties that hopefully we find are a little bit more in tune with the the craziness that mother nature <laughs> gives us here in, in surrey county so let's talk a little bit more about arendelle and coro noir you're starting to see see people plant that you're starting to hear a little bit more about it but folks that listen to the podcast may not know those varieties so can you talk a little bit more about what they you know kind of the characteristics of each and why you picked those two in particular so why, why i picked those um I, I was doing research and and like i said still have a lot of research to be done but uh 
came across those two. Both of them are out of Cornell. They're they're great breeding program there, and uh, some of them have have been released as as recently as 2006. So they are relatively new varieties. Um, what first caught my attention was the wine quality tasting notes, and I after reading it, it, it shared a lot of similarities with Cab Franc. And Cab Franc, for many, many years, has, on the retail side of things, has been our most preferred wine. So it goes without saying it broke my heart to pull it up, but we, we are hoping that once these come to fruition on the wine side, that they will share a lot of characteristics with Cab Franc. Um, so naturally, the, the wine quality was an important aspect, but even more so, uh, in my opinion, uh, what was the growing aspect. And the two things that stood out initially in my mind was the, the higher resistance to powdery and downy mildew. And for, for folks that don't know, that is one of the, the top issues that we as North Carolina growers do have, specifically with a lot of your French vinifera varieties. Um, we, we have a lot of hot, humid weather and, and grapes in general do, do not like the humidity, they don't like the moisture on their leaves, and, and as a result of that, um, you start having mildew problems. Both of these varieties, like I said, were planted in 2020. They have not yielded a crop yet, hope to have some maybe this year, but in the years that we have been growing them, they, they have shown that resistance. Fungicide sprays have, have been minimized. The leaf quality has been absolutely gorgeous late season, no, no defoliation to speak of. And so far, they seem to be in tune with, with weather pattern. That's good. That's good. That's what you want to hear. Absolutely. And, and certainly, the easier it is to grow, the, you know, it's probably, you know, makes for life easier for you. Then. It does. It does that. <laughs> so let's take a step back. You mentioned you were sixth generation here on the farm, and this is a century farm property. So tell us a little bit about how that impacts both the approach that you have to farming and just the importance to the family, to the generations? For, for us as a family, I, I would say that that is, is the utmost importance of the business in general. Um, it, it's somewhat taboo, I think, but uh, our passion was, was actually not the wine and the grapes initially. Our passion was, was driven by the, the multi-generational aspect of the farm and, and growing something on the land that, that's now been in our family for 126 years. Um, we, we, like I said, landed on grapes, and, and through that, the, the passion for wine and the passion for grapes has, has vastly increased, and, and there is an extreme passion in that now. But my, my father-in-law and mother-in-law, they, you know, they were raised priming tobacco, and, and seeing the, the blood, sweat, and tears that, that went into that, and, and hearing all the stories of past generations that were probably working the fields with mules or pickaxes, and, and it was a hard life. But, but they always seemed happy. They always provided for the family, and, and it was their own slice of heaven here on earth. And, and they, they wanted to continue that. And now, for, for me and my wife being sixth generation, we, we were fortunate enough to have hopefully seventh generation about 10 months ago. Um, there, there's nothing more fulfilling, I think, for in, in life than the family aspect, being surrounded by those that, that you love and 
you know, in my case, I get to work with those that I love every single day and, and sort of pay homage to all those that have went on before us. That, that's actually how we came to, to learn of the Century Family Farm aspect that North Carolina provides. North Carolina does a wonderful job with that. But back in, I think it was 2000, 2001, Van and, and my mother-in-law, Kathy, did just that. They was looking for a, somewhat of a means to memorialize and started doing the, the deed research and hired a lawyer to, to formalize everything. And we were certified as a, as a North Carolina Century Family Farm. Great privilege. So. Definitely. Um, so let's talk a, a little bit more about the vineyard and Take it, t maybe take folks through kind of what the, the various activities are throughout the year. Uh, we're recording this in, in late March, so we're nearing or maybe have already had some bug break in the vineyard. Um, so talk about, you know, what happens there and then what's next as we move through the vineyard. And what are the maybe the first varieties to bud break and, and what are some of the later ones? Okay. So one of the... the somewhat of a difference with with farming grapes is there's not hardly ever any damage. uh <laughs> things do slow a little bit but but i look at it as a 12-month process sure. there's there's not you're not planting in the spring and harvesting in the fall and, and then having those those breaks um during the winter months sometimes as early as, as december or january even we will start pruning so you have to go in cut the vines back from from previous year's growth and that naturally reinvigorates them for the upcoming year. And depending on how you prune, uh, kind of dictates as to how early you prune. We've got an aging older vineyard, so we've been doing some, some pretty significant remediation uh, past couple years. So we've been doing a lot of cane pruning, uh, which is removing the, the cordons and, and establishing new cordons with previous year's shoots. Uh, we've also unfortunately had some some freeze damage and of course that had to be replaced and, and worked around as well but we're we're in the period of time right now that most of us uh, a lot of sleepless nights and a lot of worry we we get a lot of early warmth and that invigorates everything to start pushing buds and, and breaking bud and and that's where we're at right now and then this cold front has come in so we're all cautiously awaiting and, and seeing if we can skirt by without any frost or freeze damage. Once you get past that, you, you start working on your canopy growth. Um, April and May, you will shoot thin some, that depending on what you, you want as a crop load, and, and of course different varieties have different growth habits, but you there, there's all sorts of ratios in, involved in grape growing. You, you want a correct number of shoots, you want them appropriately spaced. You want a correct number of leaves. So once you establish your, your shoots that you want to, to maintain, of course you will reach full canopy, uh, like I said, somewhere around middle, middle to end of May. Um, you will leaf pull generally on, on a lot of, especially your vinifera varieties. Uh, and that is where you literally pull leaves around the fruit zone that stimulates a little bit better airflow, better pesticide penetration, a little bit more even ripening from a, a sun exposure standpoint. So once we get through that, you will hedge. 
So the, the, the vines grow up through the trellis system. They have a tendency to, to want to lop over the, the trellis, kind of like a bad side part. <laughs> and once again, it, it distorts your, your leaf ratio. Um, you want the, the nutrients and the, the plant energy going to the grapes and not the leaf. Um, you can all, that can also play a role in your taste. You, you can gain vegetative taste in your wine if you let the leaves get too unruly. So you'll go in and hedge. Uh, some of it's done by hand, and then some of it is done, we, we do have a mechanical hedger on a tractor uh, that kind of makes some, some good rough passes, and then we go in and fine tune by hand. After that, of course, you're, you're constantly worried about uh, outside pressure from, from deer and birds and raccoons. So there's particular varieties that we net there's deer fencing that we, we put up and maintain. Um, haven't quite figured out the best approach to raccoons. Uh, they, they are tricky little boogers and uh, enjoy eating our grapes. But uh, constant bug pressure, uh, there, there's everything in the world wants to eat your grapes or take your grapes before you get. So it's, it's kind of a constant worry and, and constant effort to, to hopefully get to harvest and then once you get to harvest, you worry about hurricane. And, and that seems to be a constant pressure as well here in North Carolina. You, you finally raise these beautiful grapes and you get them just right there next to harvest. And then you can get a deluge of four and five inches of rain. And of course that affects your, your sugar content, your acidity levels, and skin composition, different diseases. Hopefully you skirt by that and you harvest for us. Um, First ones to, to break bud, I'll go back. First ones for, to break bud for us are our Chardonnay, Viognier, and Niagara. Um, closely following that is uh, Syrah, Merlot, and then your, your Cabs and Chamberson, some of your, your other, other reds are a little later in the season on up towards April. And then harvest usually follows that. Um, our Niagara, are always the first to come off. And used to, um, especially when we were picking with just family, we would wait until Labor Day when the kids was off from school. <laughs> Everybody would come pick on Labor Day. Uh, past several years, it seems to be about the, the third to fourth week of August is when we'll pull our Niagara. And the Viognier and Chardonnay closely follow around the first week of September. You've got a few reds sprinkled throughout the, the middle of September, uh, usually Merlot and Syrah. And then for us, our latest hanging varieties are Chamberson. And typically, um, last week of, of September is what we shoot for. Uh, weather, of course, naturally always dictates that, and it can run into uh, maybe even the first week of October. Have you seen that? So you mentioned the Niagara is now a couple of weeks early. Is that something that had started like in the last 10 years? We progressively started to see things earlier, like bud break is now earlier. Harvest is then, therefore, if you get varieties because of the early bud break. It's, it's... I, I would argue, and my father-in-law would argue, that, that we have seen changes. He, he equates it you know, to his 22 years of, of seeing it and feeling it. And then intimately, I've, I've gotten to be very involved in the past three years with it. Um, things have changed. And, and you know, I, I tell people, I said, I am neutral in the, in the fact of 
whatever you want to label it as, I don't care. I just know what I'm experiencing and, and the impact that it has on me growing grapes. Sure. Yeah. And, you know, we, we are seeing, uh, not necessarily, 2020 we had some late frost up in, in May, but, but generally speaking, it's not necessarily late frost, but it's uh, mild and, and earlier winters. Right. So then you fast forward to March and you're hitting 60, 70 degree spring filling days. Everything thinks it's time to come out and, and it's not. Right. So you, you have frost pressure there. Um, humidity, uh, we, we've been hot and humid here lately. And, and hot's not necessarily a bad thing. The humidity is what gets you. I would much prefer a nice gentle breeze and you know a little bit of cool air masses flowing through. Seems like we're getting less of those. And and then like I said, a lot of hurricane rain. And and that, that just plays havoc. Really, really affects your quality. I I, I tell customers in, in comparing even California grapes to North Carolina grapes, it's it's two totally different growing conditions. Uh, they're they're picking at, at a vastly different sugar content, acidity whole nine yards versus what we're we're enduring and and there's been several years that uh, unfortunately you you pick based on trying to save a crop rather than trying to fine-tune the sugar and acidity and letting them hang you you just won't break so that that's the nuance of growing in North Carolina is getting a feel for for what we are dealt and then trying to, to figure out ways to overcome that and and make lemonade when life throws you lemons. So we're actually in a really good spot to take a quick little break, but then when we come back, let's talk a little bit about the wines that you make with the grapes that you're growing. It's time again for Wine Class with the Wine Mouths. Jesse and Jessica, welcome back. Thanks. Thank you. So a, a little birdie told me we were talking about thiols today. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. All right. So tell us all about them. All right, so first we're going to dig into the science of the compound. So thiols are an organic compound where sulfur takes the place of oxygen in an alcohol group um, and creates thiol. These can also be known as mercaptans, or as I like to call them, mercaptan, my captain. (laughs) (laughs) So knowing just a little bit, right, so we talked about how sulfur is present in this group, what smell do you think of with sulfur? Rotten eggs. Yeah, not a good thing. Yeah, definitely not. But, spoiler alert, like many things with wine, there's going to be a yes and or an asterisk hmm. where there's there's more. There's more to the story. For our purposes with wine, you can divide thiols into two groups. Those with negative smells. Boo! And those with pleasant smells that have a positive contribution to the wine. Yay! So, there's that yes and. Yay! <laughs> So a little bit more about the science. The sulfur-containing compounds, like those with that rotten egg smell, come from the formation by wine yeast fermentation. So it's undesirable, but really common in wine and can cause secondary reductive odors like cooked vegetables, onion, cabbage, not great stuff. But thiols that have a positive contribution to wine are what's known as volatile thiols. And contrary to the most other aroma compounds found in wine, these actually exist in trace amounts in the grape berries themselves. So if they're inherent to the grape itself, what would that make it? Primary, secondary, tertiary? So that would make it primary in this case. Yeah. Whereas that stinky rotten egg stuff, 
is going to be a secondary flavor because that comes from the fermentation. So again, this is why wine is so hard and confusing because there's barely a straightforward answer. But the good stuff, primary, the not so great stuff, think of it as a secondary flavor. Mm, kind of some stuff that kind of creeps in afterward. Um, in wine, those volatile styles, the good ones, can contribute to fruit aromas. So things like grapefruit, passion fruit, guava, giving away too much, but also earthy flavors, so things like smoke and chocolate. So there's some good stuff there. We'll see that these volatile styles really stand out when it comes to Sauvignon Blanc, specifically in the New Zealand style. There, that's kind of their time to shine, and we found a lot of really fun stuff about it there. Interestingly, styles aren't just found in wine. They're found throughout nature and used in a wide variety of industries for a variety of different purposes. So in the food industry, they can play an important role in aromas of other foods and drinks like coffee, popcorn, grilled meat, beer. They're also added. So think about that, the stinky sulfur, sulfur smell. So thiols can also be added as odorants to help detect natural gas leaks. Right. So yep. on its own, on its own, natural gas doesn't actually have a smell, which could be really dangerous. But I, I mean, I'm kind of familiar with that gas smell and, you know, that's going to alert you to a dangerous leak happening right. in your house. <laughs> but important. it's not the gas itself. It's actually the styles that they add. Hmm. And then this was a fun fact. The defensive spray that skunk spray consists primarily of thiols. So wow. who knew? Hmm. And then, this is super fun, owls can actually prey on skunks because they don't have a sense of smell. So they're not affected by those stinky oh, thiols. And here's another fun thing. Have you ever heard of a beer getting skunked? Yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So not like a skunk attacks it or anything, right, but like right, right. it just goes bad. Yep. So thiols are, and they are what cause those skunky odors in beer that's been exposed to ultraviolet light. Like leaving your beer in a hot, funny car is not going to turn out great. <laughs> yeah, I can't <laughs> and recommend causes, that. can cause your beer to get skunked. Wow, so. you're just full of all sorts of information, aren't you? <laughs> Yeah, I'm telling you, this is a fun one. <laughs> so we kind of talked about it being primary and secondary. And kind of like when we talked about pyrazines with Sauvignon Blanc and even esters, like when you are picking your wine and your style, you can decide if you want to elevate your thiols or culture them to where they, you know, present the way you want to. So we found some interesting research specifically with Sauvignon Blanc in New Zealand, because that's where they're pretty prominent. So the environment plays a part because the high UV climate of New Zealand's vineyards have a higher thiol content um, in the grape. And they actually found that machine-picked fruit has about 10 times the levels of thiols over hand-picked fruit. And they don't completely know why, but they think like the machine harvesting causes the release of semiochemicals, which are volatile alarm signals. So basically, the chemicals in the grapes are signaling an alarm to the rest of the vines <laughs> upstream that they're getting harvested <laughs> violently. And it's causing these <laughs> physiological changes and raising the levels of thiols. Huh. So, <laughs> so it's like a flight or fight uh, that kind of thing. I guess. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Like, help us. The grapes of wrath <laughs> screaming for justice. Or something yeah. Like that. <laughs> yeah. So for these, I don't want to be <laughs> So for these thiols, like that could be a key if you want to convert some of these precursors for the thiols, like before you even get to fermentation, um, by protecting kind of like your green leaf volatiles 
SO2 plays a part. So if you get SO2 in early, it can protect some of the thiols. We see that with a lot of compounds, actually, like esters and everything. SO2 can help preserve and protect your wine and those aromas. But and on the flip side of that, the thiol that's negative, the H2S, the mercaptans, um, the stinky smell, that comes in the ferments. And that's from like, you can get that from your yeast being stressed out. If there's not enough nutrients in your fermentation, that can cause H2S or the stinky thiols, if you will. So grapes screaming is a good thing. It gets you those more fruity <laughs> flavors, but yeast screaming is a bad thing. And that gets you the sulfur Exactly. Right. Yeah, you got it. Huh, interesting. And then the last thing is temperature, which is always important with winemaking. So back to the Sauvignon Blanc in this study we read. So they found that if Sauvignon Blanc is stored at 10 degrees Celsius, after two years, you've lost half of this specific thiol, the passion fruit smell. So 10 degrees Celsius, it took two years to lose half of that level. But if you stored that same wine at 20 degrees Celsius, you lose half after only two months. Oh, wow. So temperature definitely has some major part to play in. Yeah. So just rem- just a reminder to everyone out there to make sure you're storing your wine in cool locations, Good not advice. in your car. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> With your skunky beer. So how do these kind of, how do these styles then uh, manifest themselves in aromas and taste? Sure. So... You know, we talked some about the fruitiness. It's a lot of like bittersweet fruit. So think black currants for red wine, grapefruit, passion fruit for white wine. You know, in larger amounts, as we said, it can get to garlic, cooked cabbage, those yucky smells. But some fun examples, obviously thiol is like a family group. So there's a bunch of different type of thiols, but there's, I'm not even going to try the full names, but 3MH, that's the grapefruit, passion fruit guava, the threshold is like 0.8 nanograms per liter. It exists in wine and it can be up to 18,000 nanograms per liter. So that threshold is super low. If it's in the wine, you're going to smell it. Hmm. Another fun one going back to the Sauvignon Blanc is 4-M-M-P-O-H, that style, (laughs) has the aroma of cat pee. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. And so it can be in a wine from zero to 40 nanograms per liter. And our threshold, our odor threshold is 0.8 nanograms per liter. So um, it does not take much of that thiol for the cat pee aroma to come out. A pretty sensitive aroma. Mm-hmm. It's recognizable. Yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> you down with 4-M-M-P-O-H? Yeah, you know me. <laughs> <laughs> The classic examples of like the bittersweet fruit, we see it in Sauvignon Blanc. Obviously, we've talked about that a lot. Fermentino, Red Bordeaux, Cabernet Sauvignon specifically. Some of the smoke and chocolate thiols we see in an Argentinian Malbec or a Sonoma Pinot Noir. And I guess that makes sense. I mean, that's kind of a really good parallel to see those 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 bittersweet, darker kind of notes. You know, we found that study on New Zealand and the Sauvignon blocks there. And it's just interesting because, like, if you take the wine across the board, like, the levels are just at a standard. And then the concentration found in New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc of thiols, for some reason, is extremely high (laughs) comparatively. I hope they do more research into that because that would be very interesting to see what exactly is causing that. Yeah. We should be torturing grapes more often. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's like the first time I've read where machine harvesting is better. 
you know? Yeah, that's Normally true. we think of that as not a good thing. Hmm. Interesting. So if we, if we continue on, uh, how do we, how do we kind of play into these flavors and aromas then? How do we make the most of them? Yeah, so we kind of took the approach of taking the exemplars from the from files that we found, so like the Sauvignon Blanc, where you got that really over the top, sometimes maybe even cat pee, <laughs> you know, uh, but that graffiness, like just bittersweet fruits that that show. So for that, we were thinking like an herbaceous lemony chicken or a salad with fennel, mango, and either like a goat cheese or feta in there might be a good pairing. I could definitely see that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And then with something, you know, fruity but earthy, like an Argentinian Malbec could play up those like chocolatey, earthy, fruity flavors with something like a carne asada steak or obviously a cheeseburger with bacon and fries might go well. I don't know, just something to to hold its own against that. Very cool. Well, anything else about files that we want to bring up? I think that's all we got. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you've definitely given us a lot to think about. Well, Jesse, Jessica, thank you very much. This has been very enlightening, and we will talk to you again soon. Thank you. You can find out more information about the Winemouths by going to their website, winemouths.com, or on Facebook and Instagram at Winemouths. That's W-I-N-E-M-O-U-T-H-S. And now, back to the show. All right, so we're back here with Jonah. So, Jonah, let's talk a little bit about some of the wines that you're producing with your estate-grown fruit. Okay. Um, currently, the, the way we operate is, is from a tasting perspective, you, you have two options. We do have a, a reserve line that we call our uh, Master Exquisite Black Oak Stick. Funny story on how that came to be back in 2014 when we, we had arguably our best crop ever. Uh, my, my father-in-law knew that he wanted to do something special with that crop and had uh, ordered some specific barrels, got some of the barrels in. We was checking them out, getting ready to fill them, and one of them actually had a charred piece of stave remaining inside the barrel. Hmm. Probably left there by mistake, but that sent sent some feeling across them, and, and he that's how he come up with the, the Master Exquisite Black Oak Stick. But uh, currently we have three dry red reserves. We have a 2014 Cabernet Sauvignon. We have a 2014 BBC Parts, which is a traditional Bordeaux blend uh, meritage. And then we have a 2019 uh, Chamberson. Aside from that, our, our other normal tasting sheet is comprised of two whites, a barrel fermented Chardonnay and a stainless steel Chardonnay. We are working on getting some, some Viognier back, hoping there again for no frost to, to have some. Um, we have just released our first ever rosé. That, that was a, a fun one to work with. Uh, it's a 100% Chamberson rosé and bone dry rosé, so, so zero residual sugar. And then we have six dry reds. We have two different styles of Chamberson, a neutral French oak and a Hungarian oak Chamberson. We have a Cabernet Franc, 2018 currently. We have a 1718 Syrah, a 2017 Merlot, 
and a 2015 Cabernet Sauvignon. And then finally, we, we do try to keep several sweets, and we do a red sweet, a blush sweet, and a white uh, sweet Niagara. So from an overall winemaking perspective, we, we try to, to round out the gamut. If, if I had to say we focused on one particular area, it would be our dry reds. That, that's A, that's what we enjoy drinking, and, and we just kind of feel comfortable in, in that being our wheelhouse. Um, but uh, there again, time, time will tell. Uh, just I, I think back to the rosé. The rosé was kind of, it, it spawned from the, the past two years of being re reduced on whites. And you know, my thought process was if we do run out of particular whites, maybe a nice dry rosé could, could fill that gap. Sure. And that, that was a blast to work with. There's a, a lot of things that I want to experiment with in the future. I've never done a sparkling. Maybe, maybe try sparkling one of these days. Uh, I would like to start uh, getting into some blends. From, from traditionally speaking, we have been geared more towards uh, vintage varietals, uh, but I do see a shift in, in that coming. They're again, given mainly to the growing seasons that yep. we have. That's a tough business model. <laughs> it is, yeah. Uh, so I, I, I have nothing against blends, and uh, I think actually sometimes it can help bring out some of those preferred characteristics of the varieties. Absolutely. So that, that's something I look forward to doing. You look at like old world style producers too, they will only do a vintage year in a really good year. Really good year. And then otherwise they'll just blend it. And I think we need to get used to that more. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. And like Bordeaux, Coderone, all the, the old world, yeah. it's always a blend of something. So, mm -hmm. you know, those are things to embrace and, and, and to help in years where the weather is such a challenge. Maybe you get a good crop of something from one year and then the next year it's something, some other variety is good. Blend them together. Blend There's nothing wrong with that. You know, we've we have seen um, some some trials that we have have done, and, and even topping our wines and, and different things. Uh, Chamberson, for instance, uh, sometimes it gets downplayed, but but varietally, I, I love Chamberson. That is my go-to. Uh, love making the wine, love growing it, love drinking it. But but even from a blending standpoint, you you have beautiful fruit characteristic with a Chamberson. You have a little higher acidity level that sometimes we struggle to get on, on a lot of other varieties in North Carolina due to the rains. Uh, and then the color. The, the color of Chamberson is undeniable. It's just beautiful, deep velvet color. And there again, if, if, you have, if you've been inundated with rain, uh, you can have some, some troubles with color development. Sometimes Chamberson would be a good way to, to boost that. So keep you... I, that, that's the one thing that I have learned significantly uh, in, in the past couple of years is don't put the blinders on. Putting the blinders on in, in North Carolina will, will, will take you out. You, you've got to take the blinders off and uh, don't be afraid to experiment. We, we same situation a few years ago, uh, we had destined some, some new Hungarian oak barrels for a Cabernet Franc. There was a shipping delay, and all of a sudden we, we had everything in barrels except for a Chamberson, and these new Hungarian oak barrels showed up. And we said, well, really didn't want to put Chamberson in it, but we're going to give it a try. 
And what, what came out of that was, was, in my opinion, an absolutely beautiful uh, Hungarian oak chamberson. And it's a whole new spin on, on what we had previously been producing. So, you know, we, we took a bad situation and it, it turned out to be a, a wonderful, my, my father-in-law calls it a spectacular serendipity. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like fun. Um, so we're, one of our highlights this year is we are talking about flavors, and you, had, you kind of hinted at it. So you offer a Chambersen and neutral French oak and Hungarian. So what are the differences in flavors between those two? So specifically between those two, um, the, the neutral French oak, of course, you're not going to have uh, much of an influence of oak on the palate. So our 2018 Chambersen, it is going to be very fruit-forward, uh, lighter-bodied, and, and, and a nice little acidic finish. And then once you get to the, our 1819 uh, Chamberson, uh, like I said, the, the two barrels of 18 that we used was done in, in virgin, first time use Hungarian oak. And it, it, as soon as you get a glass anywhere near your nose, you're, you're distinctly getting the oak. So it carries a beautiful bouquet. And then on the palate, uh, front of the palate, you, you get this wonderful smoky oaky, and, and, and that's what I tell people. I, I, I love smoked meat, and, and think being here in North Carolina, all the barbecue that we have, that, that's the f- initial thought that I get is just the, the smoke flavor. And then all of a sudden, that cleans up, and then on the back of the palate, it finishes back again with that beautiful fruit-forward characteristic of, of the Chamberson. So it just added a, a nuance that, uh, that we didn't typically get. Now, overall, um, our winemaking style over the years has, has been more neutral oak, and that's just our preference. Um, we, we do like oak, but for the most part, we, we focus on trying to grow really good grapes, and we want folks to experience the grapes. And rather than than masking those natural grape flavors and and what we produced in the vineyard with oak, uh, we are wanting folks to taste. And and up to this point, it's worked. Now, like I said, I I am finding that it's good to add a a nice oak into the mixture every once in a while. Sure, yeah, it's like a new recipe. You can kind of add a little bit of this, a little bit of that to kind of round out whatever you're trying to get to. Absolutely. So you mentioned French and Hungarian, Hungarian oak. Have you used, do you use American oak as well, or is it only French and Hungarian? To this point, it has been French and Hungarian. Um, that, once again, talking about the experimentation, that is top on my list. Um, one, we, we've had issues getting some barrels. Uh, had some, some Hungarian ordered last year, and it, it just never come to fruition. And I, I hope that uh, maybe American oak would be a little bit easier to get. And I said, hey, now would be no better time to try it. Right. So I, I do hope in the very near future that I get to experience some. And to have some variety. Absolutely. And certainly French kind of sets that, that gold standard. Mm-hmm. But um, the different varieties that you get from the various oaks is very interesting. So mm-hmm. so one of the things that we, we've experienced over the years in visiting wineries throughout, particularly in Surrey County, is that almost always, especially the smaller places, talk about how we all work together and we, we share equipment, we, we help each other when, when somebody's out of something, that sort of thing. And, and Van and Kathy's name always comes up in that conversation. 
So maybe talk a little bit about what it's like to be in a community where there are so many different vineyards and wineries and working together. There's the Surrey Wineries Association as well that you guys are part of. Um, it seems like it's a key thing. It's not unique to Surrey County, but it seems like for us, it seems like it's probably stronger here than just about anywhere in the state. So I, I have this conversation with customers lots of times that uh, maybe be, maybe are not familiar with the area. Um, what I go back to is historically, um, a lot of our roots here in Surrey County is, is rural and agriculture, and then particularly with tobacco. And, and the thing with tobacco was my, my dad did it, my, my mother-in-law did it, my, my father-in-law did it. You would help get your family's crop in or, or that first priming done or that second priming done. And then immediately, because mind you, they also used to cancel school during tobacco priming time, uh, when you'd get your family's property done, you'd move on to your neighbors and you'd help them get their crop in. And, and by all means, if, if their tractor broke down in the field, you would bring yours with you. Um, so it, it was just this massive sense of community that, and, and it literally, it took everybody. It, it took man, woman, and child to all pitch in, and, and that's how they, they earned their income, that's how they fed their families, and, and they was happy to do so. And, you know, it, it's, it does seem like we, there, there's a lot of negativity in the world, I, I was involved for, for many years in the construction industry. That's a very cutthroat, nasty industry. And then all of a sudden, fast forward to where now I'm, I'm in the grape industry, and, and it's just this massive sense of nostalgia comes back because the, the grape industry is what I just described from, from the old tobacco days. Um, we're all in this together. Um, I, I think about equipment. Uh, a lot of the equipment is specialized. So by all means, if, if I had a piece of equipment break down, if, if my crusher destemmer broke down in the middle of harvest, I guarantee you in 15 minutes I could make a few phone calls and I would have one here waiting on me. And, and vice versa, somebody could call me and be glad to do it. On the, the consumer side of things, you know, we, we were one of the earlier ones in the area, so we remember the days where this, this area was just getting established and we didn't have foot traffic. Well, now, fast forward to 2022, there's more of us. We've been around a little longer. We're producing quality wines. People's coming out, and people are not generally coming out to go to one winery and go home. So the more, you know, I, I think about my, my immediate neighbors here, the more Hayes Gray and the more Hidden Vineyards or Jolo or Carolina Heritage or any of these guys, the more they thrive, the more Stony Knoll is going to thrive and vice versa. Um, it is a collective group. And then uh, aside from that, if, if there's a thousand wineries here, there will be a thousand different business models and atmospheres and wine sure. styles. And we all know wine itself is super subjective and, and objective. So I think that the business models that, that are also very subjective and objective, so it's a wonderful thing. If, if all of us were the same, people wouldn't have any need to come. So we, we collectively work together, but then we all have our distinct differences. It's a beautiful thing, beautiful, beautiful thing that uh, I think will continue to help the industry. We, we, 
if you talk the overlying theme that is that is the same amongst all of us uh, vineyard and winery is we do not see anybody as competition and that that like i said you don't get that in many industries in no, today's world no. so. so what do you think is the is the niche that stony knoll uh, plays in the wine industry in the state so for stony knoll particularly um like I said, we, we do try to focus on growing quality grapes. Up to this point, everything's been estate-grown grapes. Um, we, we make our wines on site, and we are a true family-owned and operated business. Um, my, my mother even retired a few years ago, and I've conned her into helping me in the tasting <laughs> room now. So um, it's, it's a family gig, and what, what, I, what I enjoy doing is... One, I want people to enjoy my product, naturally. But I also love the education. I love getting folks in and talking to them and, and answering their questions. And I, I kind of, once again, I get nostalgic on that. A lot of them don't know how the farming side of things work or, or they want to know about the family history. And, and by the time we have a customer leave, I want them to feel as though that they are part of the family as well. So that's my, my overlying theme is, is family, both both us, the ones doing it, and my customers. I want family. I want that, that wonderful experience. So what would you say you're most looking forward to in the future? What I'm looking to in the future is um, I see Yakin Valley and, and our surrounding wine in re, uh, regions here in North Carolina. We're all young. Um, you, you could even argue the folks on the eastern side of the state. We're, we're young. So there's a lot to learn. And, and we've made good headway, and, and we've made good headway in a short amount of time, but I want to fine-tune things. Um, I want to take what, what I have learned from my father-in-law and, and, and other growers in the area, and I want to fine-tune it and try to get it a little bit more push-button roll. Now, it will never be easy. It'll never be a give-me, give me. Um, but just like the varieties, I, I want to hone in and, and really get a good game plan for what wants to be here, uh, winemaking techniques, thinking on capacities and, and customer experience inside the tasting room. And then hopefully, um, if, if I make, make it for 20 or 30 years in, in this industry, hopefully my, my kids or my grandkids, they'll have a much easier path and, and maybe they can put their own spin on things, but but maybe the, the groundwork will be. That's awesome. Kind of something to continue that family legacy and pass it on and keep right. it going. So, so Jonah, is there anything else as we wind, as we wind down the conversation, is there anything else that you would like uh, folks to know about Stony Knoll? And then maybe tell, tell us exactly uh, where to find you physically and both on and, and virtually on the internet. Last thing I'd, I'd like to say about Stony Knoll is uh, 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 don't, don't be afraid to give us a try. Uh, I, I, I tell people all the time, um, I don't expect to be everyone's favorite. I, I, I'll try and strive to be, but I don't expect to be. Um, I, I want you to come here. I want you to try my wines. I want you to have a wonderful experience. Um, and then I want you to go to my neighbor and I want you to try their wines and have a wonderful experience there. Um, I, I welcome feedback. I welcome any outside knowledge that people bring and customer preferences. I want people to be happy, and and anytime, you know, if there's particular varieties that folks want or, or particular wine styles that folks want, hey, let me know, because because uh, I'd really like to experiment with it. Like I said, to the future, uh, look for some hopefully some new varieties. 
some some new interesting wines coming down the line maybe maybe some some future younger generations getting into the business hopefully in a few years and then from an overall industry perspective uh, don't be afraid to try things I, I love I love talking to people that that are maybe hardcore old world wine varieties and and they, they come in and say well I only drink Merlot and Cab and then after minutes and minutes of, of Cokes, and I finally talk them into trying a Chamberson. And you can see their eyes light up because they, they, they've never tasted anything like it, but they'd already discounted it. So that's what I want folks to experience in North Carolina is we're, we're not just sweets and we're, we're not just vinifera and we're not just hybrids. We've got a nice, wonderful, eclectic mix of things and, and try it. Um, you know, my Chamberson is not going to be like the next person's Chamberson, and we're, we're all different, and uh, it is it's worth trying. Worth trying every winery, worth trying every... Couldn't agree more on that. So tell folks physically where they can find you and, and virtually on the internet. Uh, you can find us. Uh, we, we have a webpage, stoneandoldvineyards.com. I, I do my best to try to keep it as, as up-to-date as I can. Uh, we, we do have currently one lodging, working on some more, uh, but one lodging opportunity on there that you can find as well with a, with a link to Airbnb. And then we do, my, my wife does a wonderful job. She maintains uh, Instagram and Facebook. I, I try to focus on growing grapes and stay <laughs> as far away from that as possible. But, uh, but my wife uh, keeps, keeps up to date on both Instagram and Facebook. Physically, folks can find you? Physically, uh, our address is 1143 Stony Knoll Road. Dobson, North Carolina, 27017. Uh, like I said, mailing address is Dobson. We are geographically in the old town of Rockford for, for folks that, that may know about Rockford, but uh, Dobson or Rockford, you'll... Well, Jonah, thank you. Uh, we appreciate uh, you having us over and having a conversation today, and we look forward to many return trips to Stony Hill. Thank you guys both, and thank you for all that you do for the That's it for this episode of Cork Talk. Thanks again to Jonah for hosting us for this interview. As you can see, the family legacy is very important to everything they do, and we hope you can go out and visit soon. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and review. It helps others find Cork Talk and lets us know how we can improve. Did you know we have a Patreon page? We also have a cat. You'll get patron-only content, early access to each show, and more when you sign up. You can find more information at patreon.com slash corktalk. And don't forget to follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at NC Wine Guys. And until next time, and remember, a cat meows when she wants some food, and a cork only talks when it's out of the bottle. Cheers. Cork Talk is a free-run LLC production. This episode is made possible in part by a grant from the North Carolina Wine and Grape Council.